Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to John chapter 19. We have just a couple of weeks left in the Gospel of John. It's going to take us through the end of this month to finish the Gospel of John. And then I'm really excited, looking forward. We're going to get into First and Second Thessalonians, a couple of Paul's letters. And so once we finish up John, and uh, I know even, even like I'm getting to the point where I'm like, we're still in John? Like we can't possibly still be in John. So if you're feeling that way, the end is nigh. And we'll be moving on here in just a couple of weeks. But I hope you've enjoyed going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to look at chapters 19 and 20 and 21 here over the next couple of weeks. So as we, uh, hopefully that gave you some time to turn. I'm going to read verses 16 through 42. We're going to take a pretty big chunk this week. Um, that's because uh, this is the crucifixion story, and I don't want to stop in the middle of the crucifixion story. And so we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus together. Let's look starting in verse 16. Then they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, And the disciple he loved, standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in that place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider this inspired account of your death on the cross on our behalf, may the truth and the reality of what you have done for us pierce our hearts. May we not merely glance over these historical facts and say, isn't that something? But may we pause and consider that this happened for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, I pray that just as you surely died, we would be reminded today that you surely live and that you desire to live within us. Open our hearts and minds to these things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as John writes his gospel, we have to remember he's writing as as someone who walked with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. When Jesus died and, and, and John was there to witness his death, this was the death of one of his best friends. The... One of the interesting things about life is, is that so much of our lives is influenced and, and sometimes even defined by the deaths of the people closest to us. If you live long enough, you, you experience the death of somebody that you loved very much. If you live long enough, you experience the death of many people whom you've loved very much, people who are important to you, people who, who played an influential and meaningful role in your lives. And that, in a sense, it, it influences us and defines us. I'm sure you're thinking of loved ones that you've had to say goodbye to. Sometimes, sometimes those deaths happen at expected times. Sometimes those deaths happen when we least expect it, and they leave their mark on us. The influence of the death of the deaths of people around us on our lives can hardly be overstated, and yet there is one person whose death has more influence over our lives than anyone else, and that, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus came to the earth, he, he, having existed as God in eternity past, chose to become a man, to subject himself to some of 
Well, all of the harshest realities of human existence, including death itself. And he came and he lived and he died. And his death made an impact, not only on the people who knew him and walked with him during his earthly life, but on all of us. I don't want to make small in any way the painful side of losing a loved one. I don't want to make it big either because it's already big. I don't, I don't want to sit here and pour, pour salt on open wounds. That's not my desire today. But I don't want to make it small. But what I do want to do is I want to show us how God often works in significant ways for our good even in our times of greatest pain. And there is no greater example of that than the death of Jesus. In other words, God brought the greatest good possible out of the greatest loss imaginable. The fact that the sinless, perfect son of God would come and die, and not just die, but die such a horrific death is the biggest scandal in human history. It's the biggest tragedy in human history. I mean, tragedy is a a part of our existence. It's a part of our reality. I'm sure many of you followed along this week as that young boy in Morocco uh, was discovered to have fallen into a well and there was this tremendous effort to rescue him only to find out that his rescuers got there too late. That is tragedy. And again, I don't want to make small the painful side of that in any way, but let's open our minds to consider some of the ways by which God brings about good through tragedy. Jesus' death is not just tragic. It's in many ways eternally fruitful. In fact, Jesus himself says, unless, unless a grain of wheat dies and falls to the ground, then it will not produce a harvest. And so Jesus anticipated that his death must come first, and then the fruitfulness of that death would continue on for all of eternity. So I want to I consider some of the things that, that John shows us in his account of Jesus's death. And you have to remember, John is writing after the other three accounts of Jesus's life and ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. And so John often takes, takes a, a, a different uh, perspective. He wants to highlight things that haven't yet been highlighted. And he, he points us to some very helpful things as he describes Jesus's death. So if you have the handout, I encourage you to follow along. We'll fill in some of the blanks there as we work through John 19 together. The first one is this. What did Jesus' death accomplish? Jesus' death exposed the sinfulness of man. It exposed the sinfulness of man. Now, we'll talk about why that's good news in a minute because it doesn't, on the surface, sound like very good news. But first, let me read. I want to read 16b, the second half of 16. By the way, if you ever see that in scripture references, if you see, like, like if I were to write this scripture reference out, I would say, 
um, John chapter 19, verse 16, then I'd put a little B beside it. That means the second, the second sentence, the second part of that verse. And so if you look at 16B, it says, Then they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out to what is called place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Essentially, those are the three potential languages that anybody walking by would have spoken. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. Now, the Jews have successfully convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus. They have gotten their way with this whole trial of Jesus against all odds, with no, with no evidence to convict him of, of any crime or of any sin, they have convinced the highest authority in their land to join them in crucifying Jesus. And yet they are so petty and so sinful that that's not enough for them. So Pilate has a sign made and, and some historical information would suggest that this was common practice, that you would put a sign over a criminal who was being publicly executed that said what they did wrong as an example. And so crucifixion, you'd be, you'd be hung on a cross and you would be publicly displayed. You would often hang there for a couple of days with a, with a sign, uh, presumably long after you're dead if you're there for a couple of days, with a sign over your head saying what you did wrong and you would be crucified in a very public place so that all those coming by would see what you did wrong and the cost for doing that. And Pilate had it put in all three languages that potential pastor buyers would have spoken so that everyone would see this. And the Jews... Those who walked by took offense at this because it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate's kind of an interesting character in this story, right? Because he has this back and forth with Jesus. If you were here the last couple of weeks, he has this back and forth with Jesus where he's not really seen that this guy's done anything wrong, but he, he, he doesn't want to upset the, the Jews either and cause uh, a riot that might potentially cost him his job or possibly even cost him his life. And so he, he goes along with this thing. But there's some, some evidence to suggest that, that Pilate w- became convinced of who Jesus was, or at least partially convinced of who he was, or at least convinced of his innocence, which makes his participation in Jesus's crucifixion all the more sinful if he knew Jesus had done nothing wrong, and that he, by all means, should not have had him crucified. But he puts this sign up, perhaps in, a, in, 
in a moment of inspiration from God, he accurately declares who Jesus is. But the sinfulness of man is so deep and so complete that even having won this great victory over Jesus, even having accomplished all that they set out to accomplish that day and having this whole Jesus revolution finally put to an end at Jesus' crucifixion, they want to get into this petty debate over the words that Pilate has placed over Jesus What does this reveal to us about man? It reveals to us how sinful we really are. Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, he would say, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What what a, a terrible assessment of mankind. How can Paul speak this way? How can he say there's, there's no one righteous? No one seeks after God? Well, he can speak this way because he is one of us. And as a human, he did all of these things. As a human, he, it, was, it was his feet who were, who were quick to shed blood. It was his tongue who deceived. It was his lips that spewed forth the viper's venom as he persecuted the early church and had followers of Jesus killed for being Christians. He knows all too well the sinfulness of mankind because he too is mankind. Now, this is, this is so problematic for the modern mind to say that all of us are evil isn't, isn't just sort of absurd to us. It's offensive to us. We take offense at this. What are you talking about? Are you saying my grandma was evil? Well, I think that's because when we measure evil, we measure, we measure by a standard that compares human to human. And, and judging one another human to human, yeah, your grandma probably wasn't that bad of a person. Hopefully not. <laughs> but when we judge ourselves according to the standard that God has set, the standard of his righteousness, the standard of his purity, the standard of his holiness, then yes, yes, this is an accurate assessment of mankind. All of us, even the best of us, by our standards, fall short of the glory of God. By that standard, there is no one righteous. No, not even one. Jesus' death exposes this. 
How does it expose it? It exposes this reality, not just by the response of the Jews, but it exposes this reality by the simple fact that Jesus had to die. What would it take? Let's just, let's just say there was only one person to ever exist, and that's you. What would it take to make you fit for heaven? What would it take to make you acceptable before God? What do you think? You probably think, well, I've done some things wrong, but most of them weren't that bad. Some of you might be thinking, man, it would take a lot. Either way that you view yourself, the answer is the same. What would it take to make you fit to be in God's presence for all of eternity? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the only son of God. It would take the highest price ever paid to make you fit for God's presence. That's how Jesus' death, you think, if if you've been thinking, well, Jesus had to die because so many people have sinned in so many ways. Well, the reality is, is even if just one person sinned in just one way, the the debt and the, the price that needed to be paid was the same. Jesus needed to be crucified. He needed to die as a substitute in our place, on our behalf, so that we could be made right before God. Jesus' death exposes the sinfulness of mankind. The next thing you'll see on the handout is Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to take these and sort of build up to something here. His death fulfilled prophecy. In verse 23... It says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. Why does that need to be in there? What significance does that have? They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven into one piece from the top. Who cares? Who cares how many seams were on his tunic? So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. Why are we being told this? And then John tells us, this happened that scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. The the astonishing thing about Jesus's life and his his death, his crucifixion and his resurrection is the, the vast number of prophecies, some of them down to such minute details such as this. It was actually prophesied how the soldiers would, at his crucifixion, would handle his clothing. Because when they would crucify somebody, they would strip them down. Some argue to an undergarment. Some argue that they would strip them completely naked. Either way, you've got their outer clothing to deal with. And so long before Jesus was crucified... What would happen down to such minute detail as what the soldiers are going to do with his clothing? Because this would happen with every crucified criminal. Every time you crucified somebody, you'd have to do something with their clothing. 
even if it's just leave it lay there on the ground, somebody has to make a decision. And that decision was predicted hundreds of years before it happened. What would they do with his clothing? Well, Scripture had already predicted that. They divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did, John says. But then he goes on, if you skip to verse 31, he tells us of some other details that were prophesied before Jesus' crucifixion. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. What that means is this was Passover week. And so several times a year, there were these Jewish festivals and feasts uh, where oftentimes Jews would come gather in Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. And this happened to be one of those weeks. And because it was one of the weeks where they were celebrating uh, a special festival, this would happen to be the Passover, um, that Sabbath was particularly special. And so they didn't want dead bodies hanging around, kind of killing the vibe, making people uncomfortable, and, and potentially even ceremonially unclean because there were strict guidelines that the Jews had to live by that week leading up to the Passover to prepare themselves for the Passover dinner. And so they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. Why have their legs broken? In the process of crucifixion, your hands are, or your wrists are nailed to a piece of wood and then your feet together are nailed to a piece of wood. And you actually usually would die by suffocation. You would die by suffocation because if you uh, allowed yourself to slump down, you wouldn't be able to breathe. And so you'd push with your feet using the nail as a place to push off of. And you push up to catch a breath and slump back down. And you would continue this exhausting process until you died. It's a horrible way to die, of course. Sometimes people would hang on for quite some time though. The human will to, to, to live it was ex, is extraordinary in most cases. And so people might hang there for a day or two. And so they crucified Jesus and they wanted to, along with the two other men who were crucified with him, and they wanted to make sure that they were dead. And so they would break their legs so that they could no longer push themselves up to catch their breath and they would basically suffocate and die. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, verse 32, and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also so that you also may believe. That's John. He's telling you, I was an eyewitness. I saw this with my own eyes. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. Now, two things that are let's say, unlikely to have happened. Well, one thing that's unlikely to have happened during crucifixion 
and another that I guess you could argue happened with the nails. One is that you would go through what Jesus went through and not suffer any broken bones. I mean, they beat Jesus nearly to death. For hours, they tortured him before they crucified him. Probably one of the reasons why he died before the other two. It's because he, he was nearly dead when they brought him to the point of crucifixion. And so to go through that entire process and to not suffer any broken bones was, I don't want to say miraculous, but unlikely. And the, the other scripture that's fulfilled here is that they will look at the one they pierced. It was, let's say, equally unlikely or at least somewhat unlikely that, that they would pierce his side in the process of crucifixion the way they did with this spear because it just wasn't necessary. It wasn't a normal part of crucifixion. So here we are, some minute details, if you will, of Jesus's crucifixion being prophesied and predicted before they would even happen. How many of these things, how many of the things that Jesus did in his life and during his death were actually prophesied before they happened? Conservative estimates put that number at over 300. Others have, have put the number much higher at five or six or even 700 different aspects of Jesus's life, ministry, and death, and resurrection that were prophesied before they happened. What are the odds of one man fulfilling over 300 prophecies about the Messiah? Did you know that there, have, there were, before Jesus, presumed messiahs amongst the Jewish people? There were, there, Jesus isn't the first one who came along and people said, that must be the Messiah. That must be the one that the Old Testament prophesied about. And did you know that there have been, I don't know how many, I would assume many over the last 2,000 years, more messiahs, people that, people that others presumed this must be the messiah. That's not a rare occurrence among the Jewish people that somebody rises sort of to the top of the bunch as a leader and as a teacher and as a rabbi and people think maybe this is the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Jesus' death fulfilled prophecy of the Old Testament. His death exposes the sinfulness of man his death fulfills prophecy. The next thing you'll see on the handout is that Jesus' death made followers into family. What I'm trying to do here is move towards seeing some of the unique and beneficial ways that God works through Jesus' death to bring about good. Because we put death in this category of that's the worst possible thing that could happen. And, and in, in so many ways it is. And yet God has this ability to bring so much good out of not just Jesus' death, though that's where the most good is going to come from, but through the death of loved ones that we lose as well. And one of the things that God does to bring about good is that he makes followers into family. I'm going to look at verse 25. And in verse 25, it says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, whose name was Mary, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
Like somebody come up with a different name for your kids for crying out loud, right? So you got the three Marys hanging out. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, which is another way, there's two ways that, that John refers to himself in this passage. This is another way that he refers to himself uh, in his gospel. He says this on a couple of occasions. He describes himself not by name, but as the disciple uh, whom Jesus loved. And you could take that a couple of different ways. You could say, I have this guy, you know, kind of like I do, you know, I'm the youngest of three and I'm not afraid to say it. My mom loves me more than my other siblings. I mean, it's just the reality uh, of our, of our family. Um, so you could take it that way. Like John saying, Oh, the one that Jesus loved. Uh, but there's another way that you could take that. And that's probably more accurate. And that's a, a an expression of humility that, wow, Jesus loves me. That's an incredible thing to think about. So it says here, the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, again, this would be John, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. One of the cool things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it it takes people who make a commitment to follow Jesus and it makes us family. It bonds us together. Being a Christian, being a Christian disciple, being a true follower of Jesus sort of brings you into a family of billions of other believers of Christ throughout history. Brings you into a family of now not just strangers or acquaintances, but brothers and sisters. John, John, some of Jesus' dying words to one of his followers, the disciple John, he said, woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And I don't know the backstory. I don't know if, you know, perhaps John's mother wasn't alive anymore. Uh, it's uh, pretty well assumed that Mary was a widow by this point in her life. And so you've got these two people that, sort of, let's say, have room in their lives to care for somebody else. And Jesus brings them together and says, take care of each other. Be there for each other. Help each other through this life. He makes followers into family. I wanted to spend more time on that. Well, let me spend just another minute on it. I'm, I'm eating up a lot of my time, so I'm not gonna spend as much time as I wanted on that. But I want to speak specifically to people in, in, in this room or perhaps listening online who feel like they don't have a tribe, who feel like they don't have a lot of close friends, or feel like they don't have a lot of um, good family around them. I just want to remind you that Jesus brings you into his family. And that might not play out perfectly here in this life. You may still be lonely at times. You may still feel like you don't really fit in. You may still feel like you don't really have a lot of people that, that, that care about what's going on in your life. But I want, I want to remind you that this life is just a small speck of what will eventually blossom into eternal life. 
And in eternity, which by comparison is far more significant, you will absolutely have close, loving relationships with an eternal family full of other believers in Christ. And it's my hope that you'll experience, let's say, the first fruits of that here and now. It's my hope that you'll experience, especially and specifically here at Redemption Church, that you will experience what it means to be a part of the family of God. But even if that doesn't play out as well as we might hope, just rest assured knowing that Jesus has brought you into his family. You won't be alone forever. He has made you family. Let's look at the next one together. Jesus' death at at once, I'm sorry, Jesus' death once and for all made atonement for sin. His death once and for all made atonement for sin. I'll give you a chance to, to, to write that down before we switch over to the scripture slides. But we're going to look at verse 28. Jesus' death once and for all made atonement for sin. Verse 28 says, After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. John witnessed this with his own eyes he saw the savior of the world declare with the same voice that birthed creation into existence with the same breath of life that said before all of this was said let there be light and there was light John saw Jesus with his final breath express the most hopeful and and most satisfying words that has ever been heard by human ears. It is finished. What is finished? What has been brought to completion? The answer to that is what makes this so astounding and so amazing. The answer to that makes it just unthinkable that that human eyes would even get to see this and that human ears would even get to hear this. What has been finished is that God, who has looked upon his creation and who has seen sin bring absolute chaos and destruction and death into a world that he created as good and has devised a plan to send into that creation his very son, to die in our place on a cross that you and I deserve to hang on and that in doing so, 
He has made full and complete atonement for our sins. In doing so, he has made possible the gift of eternal life for every man, woman, and child. It is finished. It's done. Everything that needed to happen has taken place. Jesus lived the life he needed to live. Jesus died the death that our sins required. In this moment that has been anticipated for at least thousands of years, in this moment that Jesus lived his whole life for, in, the, in this moment that drove Jesus, as we look back over the Gospel of John, and as you think about uh, just a couple of chapters earlier, well, a few chapters earlier, before Jesus said to his disciples, hey guys, get your stuff together, we're going back to Jerusalem. And his disciples looked at him and they said, hey, but they said next time they saw our faces in Jerusalem, they were going to kill us. And Jesus said, yeah, I know, that's where we're going. And then his disciples looked at one another and they said, if that's where Jesus is going, that's where we're going. And they came and the crowd celebrated him. In fact, he comes in riding on a donkey to the cheers of all the people. And then we watch this story play out as over the next several days, Jesus is, goes from being hero to being the one that, that presumably some of the same people that were in that crowd celebrating him are standing before Pilate and Pilate says, hey, it is Passover week. You have this tradition where I release to you uh, one, one of the criminals in my custody that belongs to the Jewish people. And he says, who do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you, do you, do you want this rebel? Do you want this, this hateful man, this inciter of violence named Barabbas? And they said, give us Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. It is finished. He did everything that he came to earth to do. He paid the price for your sin. He is completely and perfectly satisfied God's just wrath for everything you ever did wrong. And now he stands ready and willing to accept you into his family, to accept you into his presence for all of eternity because of what Jesus did on your behalf. What did God do through Jesus' death? Jesus' death once and for all made atonement for sin. Hebrews says it this way. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, I'll tell you what, you look up, write down, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, and then also in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 28, because I want you to read those this week. I'm not going to read them now for the sake of time. 
Jesus once and for all made atonement for sin. Then let me tell you the last one because this is where this inevitably needs to go. Because I don't, I don't, we don't want the church to be full of a bunch of people who are just glad that they're saved and not going to hell anymore, but don't do anything with that. And so I really want to get in this last point here in the last couple of minutes. The last thing you'll see on the handout is this, that Jesus' death made bold the timid. His death made bold the timid. Here's the cool thing that happens at Jesus' death. Again, I want to go back to, I'm, I'm trying to, maybe I'm making too close of a parallel between the, the loss that we experience when we lose a loved one and what happens with Jesus. Maybe that's not, maybe we shouldn't make too close of parallels between that because Jesus' death, as you can see, is just radically different. But I do want to just give some attention to the fact that even even when we lose loved ones in this life, that God works good out of that. I've seen so many times people who experience the loss of a loved one, and that brings about positive change in their own life. It puts them on a new, new path or a new direction. That's certainly true of Jesus' death. Let's look at verses 38 through 42, the end of our passage. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus's body. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, in other words, another secret follower, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus's body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden and no one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. It's not an, by accident that, that or, or, or John could have simply said two of Jesus' followers came and collected his body, prepared him for burial, and placed him in the tomb. Those are important details that we need to know. What we don't need to know, on, at least on the surface, is these specific details about who these men were. But John tells us who they were. They were people that prior to this moment were afraid to let anyone know that they were followers of Jesus. Prior to this moment, they had been secretly serving him. And now the death of Jesus has happened. And there's no timidity anymore. One of them goes to Pilate. You think that's not going to get people's attention? And ask, then they take him down off of the cross. You think nobody's there watching? This is, they have, they have taken their devotion toward Jesus, which up until this point was something they were afraid to let anybody know about. They were, they were part of the inner circle of the Jewish leaders. They had influence. They couldn't let people know of their secret affection for Jesus. But now that his death has happened, they're ready for the whole world to see. 
and they're no longer going to follow Jesus in secret. It's my hope that taking a few minutes today to think about what the death of Jesus means for you will cause you, if you have been secretly following him, if you have been careful to make sure that nobody knows about your devotion to Jesus, if it's been a private matter, if you don't, if you don't post anything on Sunday mornings on social media about where you're at, and if you don't talk about it when you go to work on Monday because you don't want people to know, I hope that reflecting on the death of Jesus will change that. It did for these guys, and it did for so many others. In fact, so many of Jesus' earliest followers would become so bold by the death and resurrection of Jesus that they would go on to actually give their lives and, and die for him. Fortunately, we don't live in a context where that's normally necessary. I can't promise you it'll be like that forever in our lifetime, but, but by God's grace right now, that's, that's not the cost we're asked to pay. How much more should we be bold to speak about our love for Jesus, to speak the gospel of Jesus, to tell the people around us that we wholeheartedly and unashamedly follow Jesus? Jesus' death made bold the timid. Has his death made you bold for him? If not, I hope today has changed your mind.